a brand new football podcast all about women's football. I'm Shauna David and every week we will look at the women's game right from the Champions League all the way down to the National League. Now coming up on this episode, Bright shines at Wembley as Chelsea win the season's curtain raiser. Leon mauled the Wolves to secure yet another Champions League title. Plus, we look ahead to the coming seasons in the Championship and the National League. Well, after taking a bit of a break due to everything that's been going on in the world, it is so good to see women's football back. And I've got a feeling that it's back and it's going to be bigger and better than ever before. And we'll be covering everything for you right here on the Women's Football Podcast throughout the season. So joining me today to look back on the weekend's action is former Aston Villa and FA Media Officer Emily Lyles, former production coordinator and women's football fan Liv Griffiths, and journalist and football commentator Andrew Raven. Andrew will also be looking ahead to the National League season for us later on in the podcast. But I think, guys, a great place to start is the Community Shield action where a stunning long-range goal from England defender Millie Bright and a late finish by substitute Erin Cuthbert gave Chelsea the victory over Manchester City in the first Women's Community Shield at Wembley Stadium. So guys, I think we'll just kick off. What did we all think about the game? I mean, what a way to start, hopefully, what is going to be a really exciting Women's Super League. Um, I think it's easy to say we had both heavyweights in Chelsea and Manchester City coming out. Um, I thought the first five, ten minutes, the tempo was pretty slow as both teams. I mean, they both haven't played for, what, six months now. So I think you could see that everyone was a bit rusty and obviously pre-season and their trainings had to change based on, you know, social distancing and different ways they've got to now play. Um, but I would say the second half just came came to life with a massive blockbuster of um, a thunderstrike by Millie Bright and then a red card, which we didn't really pick up straight away on screen. So yeah, second yellow card for Jill Scott. Chelsea seemed pretty dominant to me, but I think it's going to be an interesting season with these two definitely playing for first and second this season. Yeah, I'd certainly echo those sentiments, Liv. I thought it was just a brilliant contest, really. As you say, I think you could see that it did have an air of the pre-season about it, probably in that first half, which is totally understandable given, I guess, the length of layoffs that they've had. One of the things that I picked up on was just the performance of Fran Kirby, who, of course, was back for the first time since last November. She's had a really long layoff, diagnosed with pericarditis last year, which is absolutely horrific for anybody, let alone a professional sports player. But her performance just showed what a quality player she is, a quality professional. She showed that throughout. She was so creative, a real threat, and just one of the players really to pull the strings for Chelsea. So it's, it's really, really exciting, and, and it's a big relief, I'm sure, for her to be back. Like you said, uh, Emily, a, a, a bit of a pre-season feel. I think um, you know the community shield, whether it's the men's or the women's uh, match, does tend to have that that feel to it. Um, I mean, and particularly Rusty, of course, was uh, was Sam Kerr. Do we need to do we need to talk about her efforts? We'll definitely be talking about Sam Kerr just in a moment. Like we've all touched on, you know, both teams were a bit rusty at times, but considering this was their first competitive game in just over six months, the quality was clearly there to see, which I think is fantastic to think they've had that long out. So then they were on a BBC slot as well, which is also very exciting to show where the women's game's going to head. Um, so I guess they probably had some new and old viewers watching 
and tuning in just before the men's community shield happened in the afternoon. So it was a good way to set up what was overall a very exciting Saturday. We'll touch on Sam Kerr because the game was almost the story of her. You know, she continually made the right runs and put herself just in like the perfect position to score in front of the goal. But every time she just could not finish, it was so frustrating. But I'm so glad Chelsea won. But I think we were all probably watching thinking, oh my God. Well, I certainly think after uh, Millie Bright pinged one in from um, 40 yards that the most relieved person on the pitch was probably Sam Kerr. She, she, her face gradually got more contorted after each miss. She couldn't believe, like you said, uh, Charlotte, she put herself into such great positions. Um, uh, positions that ordinarily you'd think a striker of her quality would, would put away. Um, and it, you could tell by her reactions that she thought she should have put them away as well. The, the, the one that she managed to, to sort of almost put out towards the corner flag was, uh, was, uh, was quite impressive. But, um, as I say, she was, uh, she, you know, she's a fantastic striker. And it's just unusual. The reason we're talking about it is because it's so unusual for her to, 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 to miss that many chances in the same game. And uh, yeah, then to be, as I say, to be, it was sort of put in stark contrast to be bailed out by a, a, a centre-back from 40 yards. In these situations, you don't really want to dwell too much on an individual, certainly, as you say, a player of that quality. But it's hard to put your finger on why she has found it hard to hit the ground running over here. Yeah, I think she scored once in her last seven appearances, which for a striker with, with her kind of record isn't a particularly fantastic return. And of course, when she came over here in November, she came here as the all-time leading scorer in the NWSL, the Australian W League scored five goals at the World Cup last year. So it's, it's really hard to know why she hasn't managed to sort of replicate that form. Hmm. It is, I think it's difficult whenever a player arrives, not only to a new team, but to a new country where, you know, you have straight away, you've got all that pressure, all that expectation on your shoulders. And I think bearing in mind, obviously, probably the worst season to ever join a team with all the disruption that's been going on. So even though she has been here, you know, for quite well, for nearly a year, um, you know, she hasn't really played that much. But it was really encouraging to see, though, Emma Hayes, she only had good things to say about Sam. Well, I was kind of wondering what it must feel like to play in a pretty massive stadium like Wembley is, but a very eerie one where there's not any crowds and there's not much noise going on. And, I mean, I can't echo that I'm on the same par as a striker as Sam Kerr. Obviously, she's professional. I'm definitely not. But I feel like when you, you're in these positions and you are taking the shot on, you have all these thoughts and you can hear your voice inside your head telling you where you want to place it. And I wonder whether the occasion and that whole echo of like no noise at all, whether she just got a little bit too in her head at times and overthought some of her shots. I mean, there was a clear header where we all thought like, you know, you have to hit the target from where she was where she was standing um but yeah i guess emma hayes probably will look at this as sort of like hopefully this is just to calm her nerves now and maybe just ease back into the game and then hit the ground running in the first couple of games with the women's super league but i, I hope sam's not too disheartened because overall it's it's a very strange one because even though she didn't score i thought she still had a great game except for her finishing so hopefully you know, there's more to come. And with the link-up plays with Fran Kirby and Beth England also maybe will be starting. 
um because i know she had a late call up just because of an injury or a niggle or something i wonder whether she starts playing and she's more comfortable with the squad she'll start hitting those goals it's such a confidence thing with any striker though isn't it you have to feel that once she gets a couple of goals she'll she'll be absolutely fine absolutely yeah that's that's all it is you know once you hit one i mean put a bet on it i reckon she'll get over 10 this season no doubt there's a sort of a comparison isn't there in the in the men's game when you look at someone like Raheem Sterling okay not an out and out uh, striker but certainly played in a forward line that scores a lot of goals he scored a lot of goals uh, in Manchester City colours and then when it came to playing for England um, and again a lot of those games at Wembley couldn't find the back of the net and went on a, a real streak one of those ones where you just you do just wonder conflicting thoughts might be the wrong phrase but just what goes through a striker's mind when they are you know, in that position, um, and they've missed a couple. Um, it's not just easy just to stick the ball in the back of the net. It looks it um, when we look at it, but it's certainly not. It's, Tell it's... Millie Bright that. <laughs> she made it look easy. <laughs> Absolutely no stopping that. I wanted it's... to on Millie Bright's goal. I've lost count of how many times I've watched the video of that goal because it was just what Chelsea needed to boost their performance and to really change the dynamic dynamic of the game. Yeah, yeah, it was, no, it was an absolutely phenomenal strike. Obviously, given the position she plays, she doesn't often score and certainly not goals of that sort of ilk and magnitude. But yeah, absolutely huge goal. And Millie's just such a brilliant personality um, and just sort of seeing not just her reaction to the goal, but at the end as well, it was absolutely brilliant. I thought some of the sort of post-match interviews were, were just brilliant and, and you just could see how much it meant to her obviously to score that goal, but also to win. Yeah, yeah Millie's well, a, a fantastic character and, and um, she really, uh, she was asked, wasn't she, whether that's the, you know, the best goal she's, she's ever scored. And uh, I, I can't think of too many that would rival that sort of goal and particularly on, you know, on that sort of stage. And it's frustrating, like so many other achievements that have been done in sport recently, uh, frustrating that it wasn't in front of a packed house. You can imagine uh, what the reaction would have been. Yeah, when I, when I watched it in real time, I thought she had so much time on the ball to hit it. But when I watched the replays, the ball was still moving. Like, it was still cutting across her and she hit it on the fly. And the way it swerved in the air, like Ellie Roebuck had no chance with it. It was just, it was quality to watch. Um, and, and like Andrew said, it's such a shame because you just know in a packed crowd, everyone would have been screaming for that one because it was an absolute belter. I think Millie's been taking tips off Sophie Ingle because it reminded me of the kind of goal that Sophie Ingle would score for Chelsea last season. Um, we'll move on to the Jill Scott red card. So um, she was sent off for two bookable offences. Do you think that perhaps changed the dynamic of the game a little bit? Yeah, I think it did. I think certainly the timing of it wasn't ideal. Um, it was a bit of a strange one for anyone watching because obviously people weren't aware it had happened until you sort of saw the shot of her walking off. But again, Jill is such an integral player. You saw earlier on in the game, some of the balls she played, carved opportunities. So when you lose not only someone of that ability, but also someone with those leadership skills and experience at that point in a game, it's ultimately going to cost you. And I think it probably did. Um, again, I think just... It's a tricky one because it's not, there weren't incidents where you think, oh dear, you know, that, that was horrific. It, there were just two challenges really that, that, that received two yellow cards. And, and it certainly, I would say, changed the dynamic of the game and, and City struggled to regroup after that. I probably agree with Emily there in terms of 
it was Jill Scott had a bit of a weird game because I think pretty early on she seemed to have um, sustained like a bit of a knock to her neck and you did think for a second she was going off and then um, yeah I think the first yellow card was right and I think anyone coming in behind from someone taking a shot like that um, is a bookable offence and the second one was just clumsy you know it's it's is the problem is, is when you're committing to that, you're going in full in and she was a little bit high and did catch the end of G like that. So I do think they were both justified as yellows. Um, yeah, and it did, I mean, the momentum was with Chelsea, the shift had changed into Chelsea's way, but it, it probably, I mean, it's always going to benefit you if you're, if you're 11 players up to 10, isn't it? I agree with um, Emily in the in the regard that obviously to lose a player like Jill Scott from the from that midfield area. I mean, I, anybody who speaks to me will know I'm a big Jill Scott fan. I think she, you know she's obviously won a lot of England caps, but despite that, I still still think she's vastly underrated as a as a player and what she brings to to, to teams. And yeah, just to lose that presence, to lose that experience, and as Liv points out, at a time you know when Chelsea were you know, the balance was tilting in their favour. It was, um, you know, it really was going to be difficult for, for City to, to to come back from that point. And I know that, uh, you know, I mean, Gareth Taylor may want to dispute either of the bookings, once the second one possibly, but when you've, if you switch them round, fine. But if you've already on a yellow card, don't, you know, anybody don't give the referee the opportunity to send you off. That's pretty much tackling 101, really. Looking ahead, <laughs> to the new season, which kicks off uh, next weekend. Do you think that Chelsea victory sends a statement out that they're the team to beat this season? It's a really good question because I was thinking about this the other day, the fact that this is obviously the first Women's Community Shield since 2008. And I think on the evidence of the weekend, we'd like to think that those will continue because it was a good spectacle, a great way of of, of starting the season, if you like. In the men's game, which I guess is something that, that's best to compare it to at this point, just given the fact that we've got a lot more of those community shields to go off, you know, most of the time you don't see it has a massive, massive impact because I guess it is a one-off game. Um, I know that Chelsea certainly probably won't thank me for saying this at the moment, but it is really a friendly game, um, although I know at times it didn't appear like that on the pitch. So, no, I, truthfully, I'm not sure it will have um, a massive impact on, on how the season will pan out. Um, but I guess in, in that regard, we'll, we'll soon see. Yeah, I think um, it's very difficult. I mean, I've not sort of made that. I know it's, obviously it's the first women's uh, community shield for some time. I've not worked out in terms of the men's game, whether, you know, winners of the community shield have gone on to sort of either beat that, those opponents, you know, home and away in the league. It's, 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 it is a curtain raiser. It is a chance for players normally after a break of a couple of months to get back um, into action again. Although um, the men's one happened about three weeks after the FA Cup final, which is all a little bit weird. So it's, 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 it is a different time, isn't it? It's, it's eight, or as I say, it's, it's, it's a good while since the last Women's Community Shield and it's a very different time for the women's game at the moment in the current climate and also since the last Community Shield. I mean, the women's game has transformed in that, in that time. So can we look forward to Chelsea domination, I suppose, is the answer. But, well, it's always going to be tight at the top, you know, between Chelsea, Man City, Arsenal going to have their say as well. So I think what it does show is that Chelsea are very strong at the moment and, you know, obviously looking to try and get stronger possibly with another another potential player coming in. 
I, I hope it's not Sam Kerr making a statement of what's more to come for her in this season. Um, it absolutely is, as Emily said, um, not a friendly because you, you could feel both teams were up for it, but it is just kind of almost like another pre-season match. And we've also got to remember that Chelsea are going to be playing for the Champions League this year as well. So they're going to have extra domestic games on. And in this league, yes, OK, you do have Chelsea and Arsenal and Man City at the top. But it's not to say that the other team should, shouldn't be a force to be reckoned with either because, you know, this is the great game about football is that you show up on a good day or a bad day, it completely changes the whole swing and the dynamic of what that table will look like. So, yes, Chelsea are very dominant. They've got a quality manager in Emma Hayes, but I think it's going to be tight this year, especially with the um, sort of the introduction of the new players that are coming into the Women's Super League and those on the sly that we think might be coming in especially for Manchester City. Yeah, I think we're definitely in for a very, very entertaining season at the top of the women's game. I'll just remind you of some of the opening fixtures for next weekend. So Arsenal's home match against Reading on the opening weekend of the new Women's Super League season will be live on the BBC Red Button and the BBC Sport website. The Gunners host the Royals at half 12 on Sunday the 6th of September. Champions Chelsea, their first home game against Bristol City will also be shown on the Red Button and website at 12.30 on Sunday the 13th of September. Newly promoted Aston Villa, the Manchester City is on BT Sport 2 on Saturday, also from 2pm. And Man United v Chelsea is on the Sunday on BT Sport 1, again from 2pm. So a lot of women's football will be on our screens over the next couple of weeks, which is fantastic to see. So we'll move on to the Champions League final. And oh my word, can anyone stop Lyon? <laughs> The French side won their fifth consecutive Champions League title on Sunday as they beat Wolfsburg 3-1 in San Sebastian. Um, Andrew, I'll start with you. Heartbreak yet again for Wolfsburg. They've won the Champions League twice, but they've now lost three finals and two quarterfinals to Lyon. So their European adventure has ended against the same opponents for five years running. Um, getting for Wolfsburg, but... I think we all expected Leon to get the win. It's one of those ones, isn't it? Where, as you say, I mean, Wolfsburg sort of Leon appeared to be their bet noir, but then again, Leon are you know just that little bit ahead of 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 of, of, of everybody really. It's just unfortunate for Wolfsburg whenever they come up against them. If you like, it's um, if it's in the final, it can even be even more heartbreaking, I suppose. Leon were very um, uh, very effective in what they did, particularly in that first half. Um, second half, Wolfsburg got themselves back into it and looked actually for a period like they were the, the, the likely ones to score the next goal. They just kind of ran out of ideas a little bit. Uh, Leon were strong uh, defensively. Um, and then, of course, were caught on the break trying to get that, you know, trying to get that equaliser. And Leon had a couple of chances actually where they could have made it, uh, made it four in the end. But yeah, Leon, very, uh, very, very effective side in what they do. Very just used to winning, really. I think that's that's the that's the key thing about it is they're just used to winning in those big occasions. Um, yes, Wolfsburg had done it on a couple of occasions, but you know Leon just like collecting silverware. They're just they're just silverware hungry. Emily, I'll come to you for the next question. There was a bit of optimism because throughout the tournament, Leon perhaps haven't always been at their best, considering as well they were with they were without Ada Hegerberg and Nikita Paris, their two top scorers. Um, but they did have Delphine Cascarino, who was named 
player of the match. And for me, she was just above the rest of the players on the rest of that pitch. She was indeed. And you're right. They're just a well-oiled machine, aren't they? They're just a, a winning machine, if you like. It's just incredible, really. And I think there was just so much narrative around the game I guess from from a sort of UK perspective it was Lucy Bronze's final game Alex Greenwood's obviously set to leave as well I really felt for Nikita Paris missing out but I think she can still enjoy the celebrations and feel really proud of her contribution throughout the tournament and obviously throughout the season uh, but yeah Leon were just absolutely exceptional especially in that first half so dominant down that right hand side as you said there and I just think I, it was difficult because you're right, Leon were slightly out of form going into the contest, but I think Wolfsburg, most people going into the game probably thought Wolfsburg were the underdog still, just because they have got that sort of nous and that experience, Leon, and obviously have beaten them on so many occasions before. And going back to that sort of psychological element, I think that does play on, on players' minds, and you see that a lot. Liv, do you think having such a dominant team is a good thing for the women's game? Well, I mean, you can kind of look at all the other leagues that kind of have that sort of comparison with um, PSG for the French League and Bayern Munich are quite dominate. And in some ways, I'm thinking, yes, it's good to have someone dominant. But then you always, in order to be the best, you have to beat the best. Um, so I think if you just have a flurry of teams beneath you, you as a team are not progressing unless you're playing, you know, like week in and week out, some of the top players and some of the top teams around. Which is why I think, you know, it comes back to the women's game, especially the Super League, maybe a bit biased because, you know, we're British, etc. Um, but it is the toughest league because you do have end-to-end -end where second from bottom can start beating second from top. And, you know, Leon, for instance, yes, they've been quite dominant for a few years, well, more than a few years now. But I, I do expect some of the English teams to start coming up um, just because they're playing a bit more competitively week in, week out. And yeah, okay, all of them have had a disruption with COVID. Um, but yeah, we're just going to have to see what pans out, especially with Chelsea playing next year as well. Talking about British talent, England right back, Lucy Bronze, we've touched on her briefly. This was her third straight European crown with Leon. She said previously that, like we've mentioned, this would be her last season playing for Leon. She hasn't mentioned where she's going to go, but I think we're all pretty certain it will be in the WSL. Andrew, do we see her returning to her former club, Man City, or where would you like to see Lucy Bronze playing this season? Um, well, as an Aston Villa fan, I'd like to see a player Aston Villa, but that's um, that's another matter. Um, I'm I would imagine she will go back to City. I don't imagine that there really would be any other club that in the WSL that she would really want to play for. Um, I think it would be very difficult for her to to to, to join. It's 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 different if you've kind of been a, a mid-ranking side, for example. Um, where perhaps you know you've then shone and gone abroad or gone elsewhere, but then to uh, to, to have had that success as she did and making her name at Manchester City and to have all that connection, I can only imagine that, that City would be her destination. Um, but obviously that will, that will play out in the, in the coming, uh, coming days maybe. Um, and we'll have to wait and see. Um, uh, and obviously going back to the, the Leon question, um, the only thing, concern about, you know, Leon's domination of Europe is of course the very fact that that's, in itself attracts the better players as well. 
So it kind of, you know, success breeds success in that regard. And we've talked about, you know, great players coming over to the WSL, but of course, England internationals are leaving for abroad as well. So, um, you know, so when you've got, you know, some of our best talent going to the top European continental sides, um, you know, it's going to make bridging that gap a little bit harder. Liv and Emily, I'll come to you for this one. Like we've mentioned, um, a lot of British talent um, seem to be wanting to go um, abroad to play. Lucy Bronze's England teammates, Jodie Taylor and Alex Greenwood, they both came on as substitutes um, in the Champions League final. Obviously, we've mentioned Nikita Paris. Unfortunately, she was absent. Um, it must be encouraging for the Lionesses um, to have players you know playing regularly on the biggest stage in world football it's a great move for Jodie Taylor for instance when she went to Leon because I think what's been happening is when she's been linking up with the Lionesses I mean she's quite a prolific striker but I think we know just based on the fact that she's been playing um I think it's in the American League for instance there was a time where she'd only played like six or seven games before a tournament so I think for her it's a, it's a good move so she's going to be playing week in week out I know she came off she came on as a substitute um but it is it's very appealing for um you know some of the lionesses to go abroad just so they they can keep looking ahead for their international careers as well because for instance, just going back to Lucy Bronze, um, with Andrew saying that City would probably be the place that she she would end up. And it's absolutely true because, you know, when you're a player of, of Lucy's profile, when you've won everything, what is there left to win? And she's going to be looking at what she can win with England now. And the best way that she can show off her attributes. And of course, she's going to hopefully be a starter um, as long as she stays fit. For England, but she needs to be she needs to be playing week in week out in some of the stronger and the tougher leagues. Um, that's why I, I kind of said it's not always a great thing to be such a dominant team playing um, teams that don't really challenge you. So yeah, it's it's a very exciting time as well for the England team. Yeah, I'd certainly echo those sentiments, Liv, and I also think as well you can't underestimate people's life choices and having the opportunity to go and play your football in another country professionally and also arguably well certainly the best team in Europe and arguably one of the best teams in the world to have that opportunity it's like in any industry you know, some people want to do that and to, to almost begrudge that or, or prevent that wouldn't be fair and I think you see that with a lot of those players even players that only go there for a year or so they come back and they've been playing with some of the other best players in the world and they come back and they come into England camp and then when they go into tournaments and international matches you can see the quality and you can see and, and they've a lot of them have spoken quite openly about how much they learn from other players so I think that lifestyle choice is an interesting point as well because Naturally, some players probably want to stay in England and stay in the WSL, whereas others, and Jodie Taylor is the best example of that, someone that's played on every continent, I think. Other players want that, that life experience as well. And now, where the women's game is, you can do that at a professional level, which, which is brilliant. Well, coming up next, Andrew will be looking ahead to the National League and will be taking a brief look at the Championships opening season after this. I've looked after my kids since they were born. Now they've got kids, I still want to look after them. I don't want them struggling to make decisions about my money or my health if I can't. So we made a lasting power of attorney. Now, if I can't speak for myself, they'll speak for me. It's a weight off for all of us, isn't it? Yes, Mum. <laughs> 
lasting power of attorney. Search your voice, your decision. Well, like we mentioned, the Barclays Women's Super League kicks off this weekend and so does the Championship. So guys, we'll touch briefly on the Championship. Now, Liverpool were relegated from last season's WSL. They played Durham on the opening weekend, whilst there's a London derby, we all love a London derby between Charlton Athletic and Crystal Palace. Um, I personally think the Championship could be a very, very exciting league this season. A lot of strong teams in the mix. With Liverpool's recent relegation, Emily, do you think they'll potentially be the favourites to go up? I think they certainly will do. And I think it's been really refreshing, actually, over the, I was going to call it the close season period, but it's longer than that um, due to the extended extended break but the noises coming out of Liverpool seem really positive since the relegation so understandably there was a lot of upset at the time which naturally there would be especially I guess because they couldn't finish the season um, due to obviously the mitigating circumstances but there seems to be a lot of positivity coming out of the club They've made some good signings. They've kept the core of their squad, which is really positive. So, yes, I do think they probably are the favourites. That said, you look at the likes of Sheffield United, Durham, who have had some really good seasons in recent years. Durham are one of those clubs, actually, that certainly when I was at Villa, I always used to really enjoy going to visit because they had a really, really good setup there, a really, really good squad of players. And, yeah, I think it's going to be a really, really competitive season. And, I'm hoping as well that they're going to all those clubs that we've mentioned there are going to be able to take a bit of heart from the likes of Villa who okay they have had a bit more investment now but they've now been promoted to the WSL they've been sort of in what was WSL 2 and is now the championship since it started but it just shows with building and not necessarily being the favorites per se you can you can still achieve and get up to that top league which which I think is really really important for the future and, and the growth of the game yeah the obviously the addition of Liverpool to to the championship does add a a, a son of of um, excitement to it um, and as Emily says, they seem to have steadied the ship somewhat. What I, uh, I, I'm keen to, to see is, again, as Emily pointed out, you know, whether we'll see the same sides up there again. You know, Sheffield United were very strong last season. And I think, you know, Villa did very well to, to actually outlast them. I think they, the Sheffield United were, were looking very good. Um, and Durham, yes, I think Durham possibly have that sort of advantage of the... Um, of, of, of most teams having to do, uh, you know, a, 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 an overnight stay and an early kickoff and everything else um, uh, before playing them, especially at home. So, um, yeah, no, I think they'll be up there again. Um, what will be interesting as well is to see um, London City Lionesses who have made a very interesting uh, coaching appointment um, in Lisa Fallon, who was um, um, working with the men at Cork City um, uh, and then joined Chelsea. Chelsea's backroom staff before becoming manager at London City Lionesses. They they obviously had the um, franchise that uh, was previously Millwall's. Um, a bit of a sort of a, a teething season really for them in the first year, um, with a couple of people in the in the dugout. Um, but despite all of that, they they managed to get into a, a, a reasonably creditable. Um, you know, sort of upper mid-table spot. They've just got to be a little bit more consistent to try and get up there with the likes of Sheffield United and Durham. And I do think Lisa's one of those um, people who will be demanding of, uh, you know, she'll, she'll be, you know, she, she's a very good man manager, a very good coach, but she'll she'll have standards that she'll want the, the, the girls there to set. And obviously they've made some very good signings as well. Some 
a couple of players have come over from the states. So you know, there's some there's there's a lot of interest in that league um, because I think there are four or five teams who can do very well in it. I kind of think that the same thing with um, the men's and the women's game. The championships just always the hardest league to get out of. I mean, you've only got one team that can do it. Um, and it's it's absolutely amazing to be saying last season that Liverpool men were the champions of the Premier League and Liverpool women were relegated, you know. And it, and, and that's just the problem is that a, a team like Liverpool and the name in itself, you should be vying at the top. You should be in that Super League. So I do think that they're going to be favourites again. Um, Sheffield United, I know they came close last season, but Carl Ward now going to Birmingham. So I wonder how that's going to pan out for them as well. And I think there's a bit of interest from uh, the Leicester chairman was uh, wanting to rebrand Leicester City women as well. So I guess it's just about who's going to have the funding behind them. Because ultimately, if you push on it and you get the best players and you get the correct funding behind you, you're going you're gonna to come up from that league. That's a good point you've made about the championship. I'm a Swansea fan, so I know exactly how hard it is to get out of the championship. <laughs> We're rivals. <laughs> I, think, I think you'll get you'll get less talking time now, Liv. I think that's the... Uh... No. <laughs> well, we'll move on and turn our focus on to the National League. Now, the fixtures were released on Wednesday. Andrew, you're our man for all things National League in the women's game. So perhaps the best place to start is to perhaps if you can give us um, a bit of an idea of what the season looked like when it was voided earlier this year. Yeah, um, first of all, let's, uh, looking at the North, um, Sunderland uh, dominated the, the Northern Premier Division uh, last season. They won 13 and drew one of their 14 matches. And they're 11 points clear of Derby County when uh, COVID hit. And we're also preparing to face Stoke City in the League Cup final as well. But to their credit, um, they did accept the decision uh, very quickly. I think a few people around the club, you know, fans, if you like, um, we're sort of saying, well, hang on a minute, why are we not uh, banging the drum a little bit more over this? There is also that issue, of course, that any team that wants to get into the championship has to put in a, an application for the licence and everything else. And you may wonder whether, uh, I'm not talking about Sunderland in particular, but you do wonder whether uh, for some clubs it might have just been actually quite useful for them to have another season um, to sort of prepare. But certainly Sunderland would have been quite ready, I imagine. And uh, Nottingham Forest, uh, Stoke, Burnley and Huddersfield rounded out the top half. Um, in the Northern Premier. Um, Hull City and Sheffield FC will uh, relish the chance to go again after uh, miserable campaigns last season, but no relegation, of course. Um, in the Southern Premier Division, it was newly promoted uh, Crawley Wasps, who led at lockdown. Uh, nine points clear of Watford, although the Hornets had three games in hand and the two had yet to play each other uh, for a second time. Um, just two points separated the next four teams. That's Oxford, Plymouth, Yeovil and Cardiff. Well, Portsmouth managed to play just nine league games. That's five fewer than some of the other teams due to um, problems with the pitch, lots of waterlogging postponements and, and things like that. And then down in Division 1, which is split into four regionalised divisions, uh, Barnsley, Wolves, Ipswich and Southampton FC women will have been uh, frustrated at not being able to close out their, uh, their title bids. Andrew, can you tell us a little bit more about how Sunderland are looking at the moment and what their situation is? Yeah, as I mentioned, the, the Lady Black Cats were looking good for, for potential promotion to the championship until COVID intervened. They've lost centre-half Charlotte Potts to Hibernian, um, while midfielder Molly Lambert has stepped up a division to join Durham. So she's got championship football, even if the rest of them haven't. Um, but they have uh, recruited goal-scoring winger Emily Scar and defender Olivia Watt from league rivals Middlesbrough. 
And yesterday announced uh, a few more new names, Abby Joyce, Bo Studholm and Holly Manders. Um, elsewhere in the north, uh, Derby have lost uh, long-serving midfielder Nicky Legister, who after 216 games for the club is planning to move abroad. Um, their rivals Nottingham Forest have been busy in the last week, snapping up some young talent, including England youth internationals uh, Georgina Eden Hassler from Reading and Lucy Johnson from Leicester, a good young fullback, Lucy Johnson. Uh, Stoke have released uh, long-serving duo Cassie Hyde and Faye McCoy, while Middlesbrough have added about 10 to their squad, including Rebecca Ollie, who has now added Borough to Sunderland and Newcastle on her northeast CV. So she's doing the rounds up there. And two teams in the south having to go independent after splitting from their men's clubs. Gillingham's decision to drop their women's section was described as disgusting by West Ham captain Gilly Flaherty. Can you give us a little bit more on that? Yeah, uh, this is an interesting one. Um, I mean, it's it's all down to COVID again. Gillingham uh, stating the decision was part of restructuring after the uh, the COVID outbreak. Gilly Flaherty lived, has lived in Kent for almost 15 years and she said that the, the decision was disgusting and that Gillingham should be ashamed of themselves. Well, I mean, the pieces have settled a bit now and they've got uh, a new independent club formed uh, called Gillingham Women and it's Josh Otum who's uh, taken the reins as manager. They've got a new badge. Um, Chichester City, meanwhile, are now Chichester and Selsey, which not only reflects the club they share grounds with, uh, but also their independence from uh, Chichester City FC, who have set up a new women's side to come in behind them. So, uh, um, Chichester City are dead, long live Chichester City, etc., etc. Um, and one club in the north, actually, AFC filed, they reversed the decision to disband uh, their women's team a month after saying that they'd be folding. So, um, AFC filed are good for the season, We'll have to see what happens um, after that. Just a few other little uh, tidbits from the Southern Division. There's been a management change this summer at Crawley Wasps. Actually, the last season's front one has parted company with Paul Walker, the man who led them to back-to-back promotions in the previous two years and was, of course, on course for a third uh, title triumph. And just today, actually, within the last uh, hour as we record this, uh, Wasps have announced that uh, Walker's assistant, Dave Carl, will be appointed on a permanent basis. I also understand that they're close to making a number of new signings. Uh, Watford, their title rivals last season, have added goalkeeper Sophie Harris from Brighton and former Crystal Palace midfielder Francesca Alley, as well as re-signing Sarah Wiltshire from Yeovil. That's a very good signing, actually, Sarah Wiltshire. Um, she was at Watford uh, about eight years ago. Um, so she's uh, she's a good signing for them. Aside from transfers, Yeovil's big news is that the team are going to be back at Hewish Park, at least for some fixtures. Uh, the Lady Glovers have been playing down in Dorchester, but will now be based in Somerset again. When they're not at Hewish Park, they'll play out of Taunton Town's Signet Healthcare Stadium. And can you give us a brief summary of the opening weekend's fixtures? What can we expect when the National League restarts? Well, as you mentioned, the fixtures released this week. Sunderland will start home to Burnley. Uh, Derby host Loughborough. Uh, West Brom face Nottingham Forest. Stoke start by taking on Sheffield. Huddersfield host Fylde and Middlesbrough play Hull. In the south, uh, Crawley Wasp will start on the road at Hounslow, while Watford travel to MK Dons. Oxford play away to Gillingham. Uh, Plymouth travel to Canesham. Uh, Yeovil will face Portsmouth, which is probably actually one of the, 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 probably the most interesting fixture out of the ones on opening day in the south. And Cardiff entertain Chichester and Selsey. And the National League all starts on Sunday, September the 20th. Well, we'll move on to some international football and following on from the men announcing their squad, the Lionesses have also announced that they will be returning to action on Tuesday the 27th of October with a trip to Germany. Now, it's been... Well, it was the She Believes Cup. That was the last time we saw the Lionesses back 
I'll start that again. It was the She Believes Cup back in March. That was the last time we saw the Lionesses back in action. Emily, I'll come to you first. Excited to see them play again, especially as Phil Neville begins his final period, if you like. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it feels a little bit like we've gone from famine to feast, really, in terms of women's football at the moment. Obviously, we waited a while for things to be finalised, understandably, but now we've obviously got the new season to look ahead to on the domestic front, but also an international match now, which is absolutely brilliant. And I think Phil Neville will certainly be chomping at the bit to obviously get the group back together. I know they've got a camp at St George's Park in September, and then we'll be preparing for that game over in Germany, who of course are always top quality opposition. And, and to go over there will be really, really good for the group. And, and great, I think, just in terms of supporters being able to see the Lionesses again, albeit on TV this time. Liv, Phil Neville, he said, um, the players are hungry to pull on the shirt again. Germany will be a very good at early in the new season. Do you agree what he says there? Well, yeah, I mean, it's always an exciting time. I, I can imagine when you, you you want Phil to be giving you that um, that kind of exposure as well um, to play nationally. And obviously with the effects of COVID and so many tournaments that were postponed, um, they'll be looking ahead to next year for the Olympics as well. Um, so everyone's gonna come in roaring because they are the lionesses after all. Um, and I think it's gonna be exciting. And we're gonna see, I would like to see people like Chloe Kelly come into the team a bit more. I thought she had an excellent performance in the Community Shield. So I hope he's gonna get those younger players that are hungry and up for it. And um, yeah, hopefully when the Women's Super League starts, everyone will you know, be coming up to their match fitness again and becoming aggressive and um, can give them a real good um, show in October. We'll touch briefly on Serena Wiegmann. Now she, it's been announced that she will be taking over as head coach of the Lionesses from Neville. She'll start in September 2021. I know obviously it was announced a few weeks ago by now, but just thought we could quickly get your thoughts on her appointment. Personally, for me, I think it sends out a massive statement of what um, the Lionesses, what they're trying to achieve over the next few years. Absolutely, yeah. And I think Lucy Bronzes has spoken quite openly about it as well, how excited she is and the group will be to work with her. And I think having someone of that pedigree come in will be brilliant. Um, I think the whole situation actually has been handled really, really well because obviously Phil Neville will continue until next summer. She'll be able to continue with the Netherlands throughout the Olympics. And, and I think the fact now that the Lionesses have got some, or a match and hopefully more matches to look forward to will help that transition as well because Phil Neville's obviously the ultimate professional. He will be giving it his all and he will continue to give it his all till the day he hands over the reins. And, and I think then to go on to that and to have a period of time with her at the helm will be absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I would probably echo what Emily is saying. Um, I'm not always proved wrong in um, many cases, but I think for once I was wrong and I thought the FA picked someone who has won titles and is a title winner and is a very experienced coach. And it does set that sort of bar and almost like here we are, we're, we are the Lionesses, we're women's football, we're here for the future. Um, and we need business. And it's great that Phil's going to have one last run at everything. Um, but I'm, I'm very excited to see where Serena's going to take, hopefully, what is already quite a, a strong squad. It's just for me, the, the finish line is just the mentality. Um, I was there um, last, last year at the World Cup semi-final um, 
overall it was just it was it was so exciting um to see exactly what this england women's team is about i know that they've kind of faltered with the she believes cup and they've had a, a probably a, a pretty poor run um and i think phil would openly say that it, it's been a poor run and for me it, it is just that mentality and that togetherness that they're just missing and i do think that when you have someone you know of his kind of like where she's been with the game um, you're kind of going to want to play for the badge and want to play for her. So, um, yeah, watch out 2021 when she's here in September. Well, that's all from us for this week's episode. We'll be back next week for all your women's football chat. Andrew, Emily, Liv, it's been fantastic having your company this week and it's been really great chatting with you. And just remember that we're all over social media. So we are at the Women's Football Podcast on Instagram. And on Twitter, we are at TWFP1. So please go ahead and follow us on social. Well, that's all from me and the team. And we'll be back next week. 